This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Jolly and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. On today's episode, another fascinating exit interview. Today, with another MP who's standing down at the next election, former Conservative Minister Steve Bryan. He tells me why he's quitting, the sort of threats that politicians now face, and delivers his pretty blunt verdict on his bosses, having worked in the Conservative Party for William Hague and then served under David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and now Rishi Sunak. So that's coming up in just a moment. We'll also hear from the columnists today, Libby Perris and Rachel Sylvester on the publication of the Times Health Commission and what that might mean for the future of the NHS. And don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can listen to me live with Politics Without the Boy Bits on Times Radio. Just listen to your DAB radio, ask your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boy Bits weekdays from 10... Right, we begin with more food news. I'm sorry to say, last week, Rishi Sunak was fasting for 36 hours before he admitted... I do have the odd nut. Now, this in from Keir Starmer on Sky Sports News. What do you do in your life to be sustainable, to try and be a little bit more sort of planet-minded? Well, I'm, I've been a vegetarian now for um, the best part of 30 years. Yeah, Rishi Sunak's a veg... Uh, sorry, Rick Keir Starmer is a vegetarian. He says, well, is he? Long-time listeners remember when I got the exclusive on what Keir Starmer was eating for breakfast at Labour Conference. A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. A little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. Fish! Fish! So you've got, the, you've got one leader who's fasting while eating apples and nuts, and then you've got a vegetarian who eats fish. Is... Is nobody telling the truth about the dietary requirements? At this rate, it'll turn out that Ed Davies, a foie gras fiend. That's what they're all eating over at the Lib Dems. We can't trust. You literally can't trust them, can you? The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. And we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby Purvis. Hello. And uh, we say hello to Rachel Best, who's here in the studio. Rachel, hello. Hi, Matt. Now, Rachel, I'm just here perusing the very glossy 100-page uh, Times Health Commission, uh, which is out today, a report into the state and health 
as the state of health and social care in Britain today. Um, obviously, we don't have time to do the full 100 pages. <laughs> Give us a sense of what is the Health Commission and what are you recommending today? Yeah, so the Health Commission was set up uh, just over a year ago. It's a year-long inquiry, uh, which I chaired with 18 uh, amazing, prestigious commissioners from the worlds of medicine, business, sport and policy. Uh, and we took evidence, we spoke to experts. I've tr been flying all over the world, visiting other health systems to work out what, what, what works. And we've now come out with our blueprint for reform. Um, and I think everyone will agree that the NHS can't go on as it is. So even today, Rishi Sunak's admitting he's not going to meet his waiting list pledge. There's a new report out on child health and the crisis in that. Uh, you know, there's a workforce crisis, there's a funding crisis, there's a winter crisis. Every day, virtually, we're reporting in the paper something else that's going wrong. Uh, so we're saying there does need to be radical change. We're saying that technology needs to play a much higher role in the NHS and that actually there is cause for optimism. If, if you take uh, our reforms and you do things differently, then you can change it. And one of the key things you've been looking at, it's on the front of the Times today, is the idea of having a patient passport. What would that mean and how likely is it that it will happen? So what it would mean is that you would have uh, access to all your data that the NHS holds uh, and so would all clinicians. So the GPs would be able to see what uh, the hospitals were up to, hospitals would be able to see what GPs were up to, pharmacists, social care would all be involved uh, and it would make it much more convenient for patients. They would be able to um, book appointments, see their test results, follow the progress of... Um, their treatment uh, and see and also have um, advice on health tips, that sort of thing. Um, but it would also reduce bureaucracy for, for clinicians. And we heard that 7% of voters of actually people in our YouGov poll had missed an appointment, they or their family, because the letter hadn't arrived in time. And the NHS is just stuck in the dark ages on all of this. Um, it would mean also that um, it would speed up the processes for the NHS and improve productivity. And it's part of sort of a shift towards putting much more power in the hands of patients, much greater emphasis on prevention and creating a sort of genuine national health service rather than a national sickness service. Um, Libby, some of these things, you sort of look at them and you think, how on earth is that not already the case in 2023? Yes, indeed. I like the passport idea, though I think you need a certain safeguard so that employers can't check out red flags like prescriptions for depressive illness, you know, which has lost some people work through, through admitting it. But I, I like very much the passport idea. The other two things I like very much are the idea of reducing student loans gradually if people stay working in the NHS. I mean, that should have been happening years ago, you know, that you're, you shouldn't still be crippled by enormous student loans if you're working, you know, up to 10 years in the NHS. Um, so I like that one. And I also thought that they're right about taxes on sugar and salt in prepared foods, um, commercially prepared foods. So of the 10, you know, those are the three I would pick out, but all of them look really interesting and good. And none of them look nonsensical or fashionable, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose... Well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know exactly what, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about. Um, I suppose... We'll not go into it. <laughs> I suppose uh, this is a sort of, you know, the, the sunlit uplands approach to the NHS. There's clearly, you know, a lot of problems in the NHS right now, which even Rishi Sunak has conceded in this interview he's done with Piers Morgan, talking about... One of his top five pledges in the beginning of last year was to cut NHS waiting lists. Let's take a listen. 
NHS waiting lists. We have not made enough progress. You failed on that pledge. Yes. Because you said NHS waiting lists will fall. Uh, in fact, they are slightly coming down now, that, but the well, waiting we is still nearly half a million yeah. more than it was at the start of last year. Yeah. You accept that? But yes, and we all know the reasons for that. Uh, what I would say to people is, look, we've invested record amounts in the NHS, more doctors, more nurses, more scanners. All these things mean that the NHS is doing more today than it ever has been, but industrial action has had an impact. So he's not met his target, but it's the striking staff to blame rather than him. Is that the whole picture, Rachel? No, not at all. And I think there's it, there's lots of reasons why the waiting lists aren't... I mean, we haven't got enough scanners. There's too much uh, variation in the number of uh, operations that operating theatres get through. Uh, there are too many inefficiencies in the system. Um, so going back to the data point, Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, for example, drove down their waiting list by a third by just sharing data between different departments within the hospital. Hospital. So there's sometimes a kind of council of despair about the NHS. It all seems impossible and too pessimistic and really gloomy and everything's wrong. But actually, if you change things, you can make it better and there's cause for optimism. And I, I, the thing that we were trying to hang on to with our report was to come up with proposals that were practical, pragmatic, and actually might happen and could happen, not a kind of ideological um, pie in the sky stuff, or something sort of that involved just masses of money, uh, absolutely impossible um, blueprints. And, and actually, you can change things if you make those um, sort of pragmatic reforms. Somebody just texted in and said, a friend of mine in military logistics was seconded to the NHS. He found that some areas were still using Windows 97. Well, the, the tech, you know... And the it, tech is one of... Um, we spoke to the head of the Royal College of Physicians, Sarah Clark, who said that she'd been standing in for uh, some junior doctors during the strike and going on the ward rounds. Um, and at the end of the day, she came to write up the notes from her uh, consultations. And she couldn't cut and paste the data from one document to another. So so she had to retype everyone. This is everything. You think this is one of the sort of most senior consultants, yeah. highly paid, such a waste of time. And also you're going to get more mistakes if you have no, you know, it takes half an hour to switch on the computers in the NHS. It's really basic stuff that no company would be able to survive like that. And actually, but the weird thing is, Libby, that in, in smaller companies, I mean, even in the company we've worked for, you know, sometimes the things don't sort of work properly, but there's a few hundred people and only a few of those will be affected by it. And actually, sometimes, you know, you know, just have to oh, just do it like that. But there are so many people in the NHS doing the same job that if you can speed that up and make it more efficient, mm. it, it, the multiplier of that is huge. It is. And the weird thing is that so much of the tech is actually there. I had to change my NHS name recently simply because the NHS app um, would have wanted my passport and my passport is Purvis and my married name is Heine because I had babies 40 years ago when, you know, it was quite a good idea to have the same name as your husband. And um, it, I could change it. I changed it instantaneously. The, the, um, uh, the, the local surgery did it and bang, suddenly the whole NHS computer had me down as Purvis. Uh, and so that was brilliant. And some of the stuff on the NHS app has lists of medicines and so on. It's lists of previous prescriptions. So the tech is there. It just needs all bringing together. It just needs, you know, some clever central person to say, look, this is how it should work and just sew it all up. 
And also other countries do it. So Estonia, Denmark, Israel, Spain, they have these fully integrated systems uh, and it reduces the bureaucracy. It helps you personalise care because you can target things at the individual mm. and it just streamlines the whole process. So I, th- I think it's genuinely deliverable and I think it will happen because I think it's got to. Catherine's been in touch. From what I've heard, the Health Commission is promoting complete common sense as did the education one. Would Rachel consider running for office? She seems great at cutting through waffle and finding solutions to tricky problems. <laughs> well, common sense is our blueprint and, and not being a talking shop. So yeah. we, we sort of want to change things. And that's what's been rather fun is being able to stand back as a newspaper and say, look, actually, what works around the world? We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just looking at what are the thing, solutions that other people, either in other countries or parts of the NHS, are already doing? Uh, and then say, why don't we all do it? There's a, actually a brilliant example. very politician's answer. <laughs> She's not answered the question at all. <laughs> Catherine said, would Rachel consider running for office? No, I'm a journalist. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, others have done it. Uh, but, but one of my favourite examples was um, there's a, a, at St Thomas's Hospital in London, they've got this fantastic solution to the waiting list where they run weekend, they call them high-intensity theatre operating lists, hit lists, uh, and they get through a week's operations in a day with two operating theatres running in parallel and they say it's a bit like a Formula One pit stops you have all the patients lined up and they just churn through them so we say do that in 50 hospitals and you'll cut through your waiting list instead of treating every new case as being sort of unique and put you on that exactly and And they do things like they make sure all the left hips are on the same day or all the right hips so it just shaves seconds off each procedure it's really interesting it's really interesting well Sorry to disappoint you, Catherine. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. <laughs> uh, right, let's move on. And Sorry, go on, go on, Libby. I was just going to say, in the flu vaccine season in our surgery, you have to enter the front door of the medical centre with your sleeve rolled up. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. Brilliant. Just speed it up. Get yeah. going. Get going. Very good. Very good. Um, let's turn attention to uh, social media uh, and the how you stop children being affected by it. We spoke to me and Kate's toy MP last week on the show. She said that... Under 16s shouldn't have mobile phones. Well, now Esther Jai, the mother of uh, Brianna Jai, uh, who was uh, murdered in in, uh, in a park last year, uh, and obviously we had the sentencing of her of her killers on on Friday. Esther Jai is now launching a petition to demand that children are no longer allowed access to social media apps on their smartphones, saying her daughter would, without a doubt, not have been killed if greater safeguards had been in place. Here she is speaking to the BBC. We'd like a law introduced so that there um, are mobile phones that are only suitable for un- that are suitable for under 16s. Mm-hmm. So if you're over 16, you can have an adult phone, but then under the age of 16, you can have a, a children's phone, which will not have all of the social media apps that are that are out there now, and also to have software that's automatically downloaded on a parent's phone, which links the children's phone, Mm -hmm. um, and it can highlight keywords. So if a child is searching the kind of words that Scarlett and Eddie were searching, it would then flag up on the the parent's phone. What do you think of this, Libby? Because you can can understand where where she's coming from, having suffered the most appalling experience in losing her daughter and the, the role that social media seems to have played with her her teenage killers is it is it a sensible response to that case do you think 
I don't. I, I don't know. I, I think. I think that actually, um, the business of separate phones and so on is not really doable now. I think there is a big issue with with the damage done by social social media and so on. I think the the big companies. I mean, there there are penalties. You know, there are there are various things. Uh, Rishi Sunak's answer. You know, the the ten percent of global turnover of these companies, etc. The fines. But one of the interesting things I think is the bullying, the inter-child bullying. Um, you know, I think that should be snapped down on really, really hard. People should lose their phones over it. People should have a criminal record for malicious communication if it goes on too long. But what happens is it happens, it happens, it happens. The children behave worse and worse towards each other through this terrible sort of one-remove bullying, which is sort of easier to do than shouting at someone in person and bullying someone in person. But the schools should be really heavy on this. The police should be heavy on this. It should be children should know that you were, it's as if you were publishing something a, a libel as if you were publishing something in a newspaper you'd be in grave trouble lawyer trouble and I think that that whole attitude needs to change and also smartphones simply should not be with children all day in schools there should be lockers there should be confiscation you know it that should not be allowed too many schools are just mm. letting the smartphones drift through the day saying oh they can be useful for you know they can be useful for learning and so on no they can't you know that it, it has to be restricted but i think some of the restriction actually has to be punitive and on individuals and i suppose then it comes back to you know if smartphones are part of life rachel then they just have to be part of parenting, school discipline, law and order. Is it possible to sort of get that genie back in the bottle? Yeah, I think you can't pretend the world isn't as it is. Um, and there are kind of very basic brick phones. I remember when my children first got phones when they were 11, we got them those old-fashioned Nokia ones where you couldn't mm. actually get any apps. Um, and then, But then by the time they were 13 or 14, um, the smartphone was so much a part of the sort of social life at school as well. They, they started to need it, but they actually ended up carrying two phones around with them so that if um, they got mugged or someone asked them for their phone, they could hand over the Nokia one. I remember one of my children offered the, the sort of brick phone to a mugger uh, wow. and they didn't want it. <laughs> they said, oh, no, it's fine, you can keep that. So there were there are ways around yeah. it. But I think we looked at the evidence actually on social media um, for the Health Commission and for the Education Commission um, and although there are some, there is some evidence, particularly around bullying, that it's problematic. There are also uh, there's also evidence that shows it's been incredibly helpful mm. for some children, and it's a way of tackling loneliness, particularly during the pandemic. It was very important um, that children were able to communicate with real, each there's other. There's a real and tension just, there when you've got. Um, well, I think Gillian Keegan, the education secretary, admitted yesterday when she was on the. Sunday round that they haven't. She announced it at the party conference last year they were going to ban phones in schools. Something I Michael Gove first talked about in opposition. Uh, how many times have they announced it? I don't know. Uh, mm. And they haven't even started the consultation yet. And yet, like my daughter's school, her entire life is through the school <coughs> app. Yeah. Homework and timetables and achievement points, or you know, everything is through the app. So it can't. It can't cut both ways that you can't say you can't be on a smartphone but by the way your entire school life 
is an app on a smartphone. I think what's incredibly important is that children learn how to deal with the online mm. world. Uh, and exactly. that's what schools should be teaching. So in Finland, um, they have what they call media literacy classes yeah. from the age of seven. And you learn about both fake news, but also the kind of etiquette around online bullying. And you and you learn about how you should use social media um, rather than just pretending it doesn't, it, it, you know, it doesn't exist. I think we can't turn the clock back, but we have to equip children to live in this digital world. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. We'll see uh, if it does get p- picked up by the uh, by the government. Now, a couple of weeks, Anushka Astana joined us. Uh, she is the deputy political editor of, the, of ITV News. She's on a couple of weeks ago to talk about how she'd spent time with Keir Starmer up close and personal, going behind the scenes uh, for a documentary. Uh, here is uh, Keir Starmer talking about being covered in glitter. You remember at last year's Labour Party conference. My overwhelming feeling was I am not going to let you ruin four years of hard work in this party. I just wanted to get on with the speech and that's why I rolled up my sleeves and got on with it. And that, I didn't want that idiot to uh, interrupt that and I don't want that idiot to dominate what I've got to say today. Well, this week it's Rishi Sunak rolling up his sleeves for Rishi Sunak up close and Anushka's back. Hi Anushka. Hiya. Um, so, uh, how did you find your three months... I mean, as you stressed last time, it wasn't around the clock. Uh, it wasn't the, the entire three months spent with Keir Starmer. How was your, your time spent with Rishi Sunak? What did you learn from him? Well, it was really interesting. It was like the opposite narrative to Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer's like massively ahead in the polls. How is that affecting him? Can he hold on? You know, are they going to be bold or will they be really cautious? With Rishi Sunak, it was like everyone's writing you off. Everyone thinks you're going to lose. How do you cope with that? What's kind of happening? You know, what's it like being prime minister at this particular moment when your party's throwing, you know, plots at you and whatever else? I mean, it is really interesting. The thing I was trying to get from both of them was to show them in a way that we don't tend to see them. And with Rishi Sunak, I had an opportunity to go to Downing Street flat when he was having breakfast with his wife and his kids and we went back to Southampton where he grew up and had you know different types of conversations with him for example about being an Indian and about race growing up um, which are the type of conversations I don't get to have usually in a kind of political two-way um, so I do think I got to know and learn more about him and learn about his frustrations um, you know and how, how clearly hard it is um, for him to face the polls as he's facing them at the moment. I mean, I try to understand what is the actual strategy. Is it change or is it stick to the plan? And it sounds like Rishi Sunak's idea is stick to the plan if you want change. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah, hard I mean, I, now, I, I, Nushka, I need yeah. to talk to you about, I don't want to keep banging on about this, the fast, but as someone who did the 36-hour fast and didn't eat anything, last week we got news he ate, eats nuts. Then someone from number 10 admits he eats apples. And then you've got another example of something he eats while he's fasting. Yeah, we we had our cameras on him on a Monday in early January and he took a massive bite of a Twix and a full can of Sprite. And I would say a full can of sugary Sprite probably is a bit food-like. And and he actually said to us, I want it to be sugared up. I like to be sugared up for these events. And actually, I asked him again about it the other day and he sort of says, you know, I try not to eat, but he will have the odd bit, the odd apple or the odd nut. That's not fasting, is it, Rachel? It's a sort of 36-hour fast dish. (laughs) No. 
Matt, not... you went through all that pain I know, for, for, what? for no reason. For what? Um, uh, um, and it's good. The other Everyone thing that's knows that a Twix is actually a, a Twix is fasting, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I could do a, di- a Sprite and Twix diet. Uh, and good. The other thing that struck me in the piece you wrote in the Times on Saturday, which I'd recommend people look um, uh, take a look at, it struck me you approached him and asked him quite interesting, thoughtful questions. And got at times quite bland responses. But I thought, in particular, your your discussion around race and the the racism that you'd felt and how you'd approached um, uh, racism growing up and so on. And then I, I it just felt a bit like he was a bit platitudinous. Did you get frustrated by him? I mean, do I get frustrated by politicians <laughs> literally all the time? I, I do. I do think when you're asking them questions in that format, they are a bit more honest and a bit more open mm. with you. So although he he wasn't going quite as far as I was going in terms yeah. of my experience as an Asian in Britain, he definitely said stuff I hadn't heard from him before. And I, I was really keen to ask him about that, Matt, because when I went to um, America with Suella Braverman when she did... Um, a kind of controversial speech on yeah. multiculturalism and asylum. And it's very clear to me, she was like, multiculturalism has failed. And I watched Rishi Sunak's response to that. And it was clear that he was uncomfortable with what she had said. Yeah. And it makes me uncomfortable as an Asian woman as well. When you talk about multiculturalism in that way, even though I know they're sort of talking about a specific policy things. So I just wanted to push him on it. I mean, I personally thought he did open up a little bit on race. I thought it was interesting to hear him both talk about the racism he's faced, but also... The fact that being different was something that was a big thing in his life. And, you know, mm. his mum had got him to go to drama lessons to try and drum out any sense of an accent. That was, and, you know, yeah, similarly, yeah, that was interesting. Mom, you know, didn't didn't want to speak Hindi at home because she was worried about it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is frustrating. And particularly when you, <laughs> as soon as you kind of flip back to policy, you get the kind of same robotic answers. Um, but, and, and this is the case with both of them. But I do think when you take them out of a kind of typical setting, and you speak to them in a slightly more personal way, you yeah, do yeah. get something different. Anushka Astana from ITV and her documentary on Rishi Sunak airs on Thursday night. And we also heard from Libby Purvis and Ray Sylvester. You can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next, it's another exit interview, this time with former Tory minister Steve Bryan. That's next on Politics Without the Boy Bits. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing.
we've already said. Stephen Charles Brine is leaving us soon. Born in 1974, he was first elected as Conservative MP for Winchester in 2010. In his exit interview, he explains why he's leaving now. I'm not going because I don't want to lose. I'm going because I don't want to win. Describes the pressures politicians face. I've had a lot of problems with security, with threats. And delivers his verdict on his bosses, including David Cameron. David was the real deal. Theresa May. She was challenged by Brexit. And Liz Truss. If it was me and I'd been the shortest-lived British Prime Minister in history, I'd struggle to get out in the morning. So, Steve Bright, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. First question then, why are you leaving? Well, I did an interview last summer when I said that I wouldn't stand again. And a journalist said to me, we've well, got a very small majority, so I presume that's why you're going. To which I said, well, I won't miss that cynicism. <laughs> but the truth is, is that I'm not going because I don't want to lose. I'm going because I don't want to win. And I'm rather old-fashioned and I think if you stand for this job, you've got to do the Parliament. And that's another four or five years um, in the intensity of life in the House of Commons. And, you know, I'll have done 14 plus years by the time of the next election. I did at least, well, I did a good three years as the candidate. And, uh, you know, I, I always think that the pub a public man's time is the public's. And I have really lived that to the max. You know, I've really done it. And I'd quite like to go back to being a private citizen. So I'm going because I don't want to do another five years of this. As you mentioned, your majority is 985, which you don't need to be a close reader of the polls to suggest it might not necessarily survive contact with the electorate. Even if you did win, would it make a difference you being in opposition? Because the whole time that you've been an MP has been with the Conservatives in power. Does it make a difference, the prospect of being in opposition? Well, I'd be curious as to what it's like in opposition. <laughs> you know, not I think, curious enough. I'm not curious <laughs> enough. I think a lot of Labour MPs say, well, you know, actually, yeah, you can still be on the select committees you want. You can still travel with the select committees. There are things that you can get done. I mean, there are plenty of opposition MPs who've got legislation through, government handout bills. There are things you can do, but I should think the novelty of losing every single vote wears off. And... Um, yeah, I'm not that curious. You know, it's been great. I've been in coalition, I've been in minority conservative government, which wasn't much fun, and I've been in a majority conservative government, which is much easier. So, yeah. And you worked for Conservative Central Office, didn't you, when you were in the depths of opposition under William Hague? Exactly. What was I your don't, job there? I don't think I could be described as a glory hunter. <laughs> so I was there when William was leader, and, you know, we were in the depths. Yeah, absolutely. We were we were losing all the time. And, in fact, I remember in the, the re-election of Blair in 2001 when I was in the old central office in Smith Square, and, you know, we were all very young, um, wannabes, some of us, and, you know, there were Pretty Patel and Paul Maynard and a lot of people that were in the, the Conservative Research Department, Penny Morden, back at the time. And I remember the night after... After the election, the Labour campaign bus came and drove into Smith Square, which, as you know, is a circuit, and it drove round and round the circuit of Smith Square with them, with lots of activists waving uh, and thumbing <laughs> their nose at us out the window. And a lot of us who went on to serve in the governments that did eventually win in 2010 thought on that night, yeah, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get back one day. And that was a great motivator that night. Did you then take a Tory bus and park it up outside Labour HQ? No. 
We didn't do that. Um, but we did sort of park our bus on their lawn, <laughs> uh, politically speaking, in 2010. So, you know, I, I, what I did there was learn how Parliament works and learn how politics works. I, I had written to John Major when I was a student and told him how I thought he was doing it wrong. And um, he passed it to the... Well, he was notoriously keen on hearing from people. <laughs> exactly. Who he, he, he used to enjoy that sort of He passed it to the director of the Conservative Research Department who wrote back and said, OK, smart ass. Um, so, you know, I, I, I applied for a job and went and worked in the famous CRD, which is a brilliant way to see how Parliament works. And uh, some of the people I was working with then, supporting in research, I then went on to work with as an MP, which was great. You said when you first entered Parliament that you told yourself you'd do a 20-year stint or four general elections. I mean, we've had four general elections much more quickly than we necessarily would have expected. Would you have held out for the 20 years if, if the elections had been more spaced out? That's a good spot. Um, yeah, and so we did say, and when I say we, it's Susie and I, you know, yeah, my yeah, wife, quite. because often overlooked is, we can't do this without them. And yeah, we said we'd do four elections in 20 years, whichever came first. And uh, yeah, obviously four elections came first. I mean, we really should only be, we should have got re-elected in 2015 and then there shouldn't have been another one until 2020, which I suppose the pandemic would have wrecked. But, you know, I should only really be approaching my third election, shouldn't I? So... That was what we said, and like, we stuck to it. But like uh, the like Labour buses, they come round yeah, again and again and again. You talk about the impact on your family, and one of the, the things that's come out a lot doing this exit interview process with MPs of all ages and different parts of the country and experience and all that is is the impact, the toll of being an MP. I mean, you know, MP in Winchester, it's not like you can necessarily nip home every night. Mm. What impact has it had on your your family, you choosing this over what might be described as a normal job? Massive impact. So, you know, to win a seat like mine, I was a candidate. I was also juggling two jobs. We'd had a, a baby in 2007. Uh, my daughter's now 16. We had a, my son in 2010 after I'd been elected. So he, he thinks what I do is normal. And um, I missed a lot of bedtimes is the truth. You know, I leave on Monday afternoons and uh, I'm then in Parliament for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, th two, three nights, depending on where the whipping is. And then I come back on a Thursday and leave Susie to literally holding the baby yeah. in the early days and now holding the, the mum's taxi for football, coaching, jobs, etc., etc., etc. And it takes a huge toll. And I, I said in my letter to my constituency party when I announced that I wouldn't stand again for the Commons is that what I've learned is that when your kids are very little, yeah, they need you on a basic level, right, for, for caring um, and literally survival. But actually, as they get older and they get into their teenage years, I think they need you more, yeah. uh, certainly emotionally. And I'm really looking forward, actually, to being around a little bit more as my son goes through the second half of second school and my daughter goes off to college so yeah that's going to be a big bonus for me and what about i mean recent days we've had the announcement by mike freer that he's standing down and he said explicitly that is a result of the threats to his safety is that something that you've experienced yeah i saw mike actually in the house on my way to talk to you and he knocked my grapes over but i still love him <laughs> and you know i'm very sorry to hear that and it doesn't surprise me in the least because you often hear about some of the misogynistic approaches that female MPs get. Um, but men get a barrel load of abuse too. And has that changed during my time? Uh, only got more intense. I mean, it's always been there. But, you know, I, I wouldn't give it the credibility of the detail on Times Radio. But I've had a lot of problems in a place like Winchester with security, with threats, not just 
policy threats, just general personal threats. And uh, yeah, it builds up on you. And you have to think where you're parking. You have to look to see if there's anyone hanging around. You know, you have to make sure that the security is in the right place at the office. And that is definitely a factor for a lot of us. And we obviously we've seen it go to the ultimate extremes during the time I've been in Parliament. In my time in the House, two of my colleagues have been killed. And that does weigh heavy. And it and a lot of colleagues are weighing up the decision as to whether it's worth it, given that. And what about workload? We've talked a bit, or I've spoken to some MPs who've been in the Commons for a long time, or a decent chunk of time. Casework, just getting more and more and more, and actually sort of, instead of MPs being the last resort, you're often the first resort, and a change in tone. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah, I don't, I don't want this to be a whinge fest, right? No, 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 because no. we are incredibly well paid compared to most of our constituents. It's an incredibly privileged position. You work in one of the best buildings in the world and uh, you can change people's lives for the better. And that's all, the, that's all the good stuff. But yeah, I mean, the workload is relentless. It is a seven-day-a-week job. It is high profile. You know, the media are there all the time scrutinising you, which is absolutely your job. Um, but there comes a point where you decide, you know, do I want to continue at that intensity or not. I mean, I, I haven't had a holiday without just keeping across messages in the whole time I've been elected because casework is absolutely the bedrock of what you do. And it's sort of the thing that no one ever really talks about with MPs, but, you know, I, I reckon that I've interacted through casework with probably half of the constituents that I've got in Winston and Chandler's Ford because we've done something for them, whether that be policy or whether that be casework. And people who are diehard Labour supporters will say, you know, I've always voted for you, Steve, because you helped me when mum was sick. Yeah. And and that, is, that means the world to me. That's what the job is about. You've had sort of all the jobs. You've been a backbencher, you've been a minister, you've been chairman, like you're saying, chairman of select committees. Which is the best bit? Chairman of select committee. Um, I had a, I was very lucky to go in as a, as a backbench MP, but you're right, you know, I was... PPS, Parliamentary Secretary, to Jeremy Hunt when he was Health Secretary. I was then in the Whip's office, which is a fascinating ability to learn our parliament. And then... I, when I was when I finished or my come to the end of my time in the Whip's office, the Chief Whip uh, Gavin Williamson said, "What do you want to do? Do you want to stay in the Whip's office or do you want to go into to a department?" And I said, "I'd like to go to a department. I'd like to be the Cancer Minister." And uh, I think then the, the Prime Minister Theresa May was very. <laughs> said, Most people just want to be a minister, and I said, actually, no, I just want to be the Cancer Minister, and I loved that job. Why, you know, you explain why that. I've that... lost both my parents to cancer. You know, I lost my mum to breast cancer, which I spoke about in the House for the first time a few years ago. I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer three days after the 2019 general election. He was dying during that campaign. So I've always been, you know, very driven by the cancer fight, and to be the Cancer Minister and to to set in train the ambition of 75 percent of cancers diagnosed at stage one, stage two, which is the magic key, uh, meant so much to me, you know, politically and personally. So I absolutely loved that job. It broke my heart to leave it, but I left it because I fell out with the government over Brexit. I had a fundamental disagreement and I think my constituents agreed with me. Um, but the best job of all is the chair of the select committee. I, I had a whole media department in the Department of Health, who it seemed to me that their job was to keep me off the media. Um, I now have a whole team of clerks on the select committee whose job is to to get me on the media, to talk about the issues that we're working on. And I'm still doing cancer stuff as chair of the select committee. I'm doing a big piece of work on prevention of ill health, which means a lot to me. And uh, and it's a real opportunity as chair of the select committee to to move the dial on the things you care about and, and I think the public care about. Let's talk about when you fell out with your, well, at least part of your party. You're one of 21 Tory MPs. 
who lost the whip for voting against a no-deal Brexit in 2019. This is an audacious and a very unusual move for the opposition and backbenchers, Tory backbenchers, to join together to try to block the Prime Minister from ever having that possibility. And that group sort of spread all over the place. You know, you sort of David Cork st stands independently, others went off and became Lib Dems. You, d you didn't do that. You tried to stay within the Tory fold and, you're, you know, and you are still a Tory MP now. Yeah, it was really difficult. I left the government because I didn't agree with the direction of travel under Theresa May's government and I wanted to vote more freely and on and where I think my constituents were. And then Boris took over and it was much more confrontational. I think we were heading for no deal. And I remember driving home from our holiday in the West Country at the end of the holiday. It was tipping it down. The car was being buffeted by wind and on the console in the car it flashed up Boris Johnson MP calling and my wife said I think you better answer that so I did and he, he came on the on the car speaker and the kids were sitting there in the back thinking this is the Prime Minister um, and you know he phoned me up to say look please don't support the Ben Act which was the act that would have made us made it illegal for us to leave without a deal and I said okay I hear you I'd like to see you when I come back on Monday morning, I'd like to see Michael Gove to talk about no deal planning. And I saw both of them and I had those conversations. I took it seriously. I wasn't convinced and I did vote the way I did, as the record shows. And to be fair to Boris, he made it very clear that it was a confidence matter. If you voted against the whip there, you would lose the whip. And I had a text message from the chief whip um, 45 minutes after the vote saying you've lost the whip. And that was really, really difficult because I have a family to support, a young family and a mortgage to pay. And that was really, really difficult. But I, you know, I, it wasn't personal against Boris. It wasn't personal against the party. It was that I had a strong view that no deal would have been a disaster for my constituents and disaster for the country. And, um, and I voted the way my conscience took me. But eventually he wanted to go to the country in 2019 and he, he asked me to come back in. I was going to ask, what I wondered was, did you have to ask or did he come to you? Uh, I made it clear that I would be willing to stand again as a Conservative MP and eventually he called me and a group of us, including Nicholas Soames, into his office behind Speaker's chair and said, look, as he does, and I went round the houses a few times and said, look, I'd like you to come back and stand as Conservative candidates in the election to come. And... I squeaked back in in 2019 and, hey, look, I'm sure that, that getting Brexit done was a factor for some people. Jeremy Corbyn was a massive factor for many, many more. And there was a little bit of a factor that when it came to it, Winchester doesn't like Brexit very much, Matt. When it came to it, I put my neck on the line and nearly lost lost everything as a result of it. And so I got re-elected. Do you think if you'd followed some of your colleagues and stood for the Lib Dems, would you have, would you have won the seat? I'd never do that. I'd never do that. Um, I, I have no idea what, what they believe. And, uh, you know, when people talk about the nasty party in politics, it isn't the Tory party. Uh, I'll leave it there. So I would never do that. I'd never do that to my local party who, you know, come out... You always say when you get selected for a seat, I was, the advice I always give to young people trying to get selected for a seat is just think about the activists who you're asking to go out on a wet Tuesday night and knock doors for you so that you can get your dream job that's actually very well paid. They did that for me at election after election, you know, and the chairman of the association would be out at six in the morning putting back up the posters that my opponents had taken down overnight. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, I'd never do that to them. I'd never stand for, uh, against them. So that's why I came to it. Very good. So, Steve, I'm going to take you through some of your former bosses 
and I want you to sum them up in a word if you can. Let's go right back to when you were working in Surtis Central Office. William Hague in a word. Fun. <laughs> That'll do. Any, anything that particularly springs to mind that made him fun? He had a great Yorkshire wit. He desperately wanted to, to beat Blair. Um, we never, I guess, thought he would. But he laid the groundwork for those that came after and he was, he was a pleasure to work for. Uh, the man who then did did eventually win uh, was David Cameron, uh, your boss when you arrived as an MP in 2010. So David Cameron, in a word. Professional. David was the real deal. And I supported him for the leadership against David Davis. I just He just had the look of a prime minister in waiting to me. I mean, I know things were falling apart for Labour at the time, but he had the look of a prime minister in waiting. And he came and did something called Cameron Direct in Winchester at King's School. And just the way he handled people, the way he handled the questions, he was the ultimate professional. And yeah, he's a good friend, and I'm delighted to see him back as Foreign Secretary. Very good. Uh, he was then followed by Theresa May, in a word. Challenged. <laughs> by you? Challenged by me because I resigned from her government, but she gave me my dream job in government, and uh, and we've talked about it and laughed about it since, uh, and we're now working together on the type 1 diabetes campaign that she's doing. She's uh, a thoroughly, thoroughly decent person. Um, and actually, I was talking about it last night with some of the, the former 21 um, who got thrown out by Boris, and I wonder what Theresa May's premiership would have been like had she not gone for the social care policy during the 2017 general election. You know, she was heading for a big majority, strong and stable, remember that? Yeah. Um, and there were all the stuff about the burning injustices that she cared so much about. You know, she would have been able to pursue some of that more, but it was just, she was, she was challenged by Brexit and derailed by Brexit ultimately because some people in my party couldn't accept her compromise. Uh, she was then obviously replaced by Boris Johnson, if you can sum him up in a word. Unsuitable. <laughs> for the job of Prime Minister. For the, being the job of Prime Minister. Very suitable for campaigning. And, you know, it was brilliant on the stump and got people to recognise politics and notice politics and notice my party, who'd never done so before. But, you know, I've now seen five Prime Ministers close up. And, you know, without question, the current one is the best briefed person in the room. Um, Boris has his strengths, but I don't think leading a government in the 21st century was one of them. So if Boris Johnson was unsuitable, how do you sum up Liz Truss in a word? Well, without a space, wrong choice. I tried very hard to get Rishi Sunak elected instead of her. I tried very hard to get Jeremy Hunt elected. He's probably my closest friend in politics uh, instead of Boris. And uh, failed on both accounts. But I have them both in Downing Street now. So, yeah, I mean, look, the, the 44 days, such as it was, uh, it was not the finest hour of my party or the country. And it leaves a long, long tail. So then, uh, just to complete the set, Rishi Sunak in a word. Impressive. As I say, you sit in a room with Rishi, you go there with your pet subject that you think you know a bit about, he knows more than you about it. Because he's read the brief, he's done the work, he takes it seriously. And I said to my chairman when I announced I was leaving in my letter, if the country dispenses with his services later on this year, which the polls suggest will happen, may not, uh, I'm ever the optimist, I think that the country will regret it. I think he is a superb professional. He's a thoroughly decent human being. 
came and did a walkabout in Winchester High Street with me a few weeks ago, garnered a little bit of publicity, and he was absolutely brilliant. And the young people who wanted to to talk to him, have their selfie with him, the market stall traders who just wanted to shake his hand. Um, yeah, he's got real star ability. When you talk then about the long tail of Liz Truss, if, as the poll suggests, Conservatives do lose, is that Rishi Sunak's defeat or Liz Truss's? It's the whole gamut. Um, you know, the, the economic competence, if, if that's not the thing that runs through the piece of rock in the Tory party, then we've got a problem. And that took a major, major hit. And Rishi and Jeremy are doing their utmost to turn that around. And when, you know, when people say, well, we've crashed the economy, um, no, no, we didn't. There was challenges to the economy without and the markets had their challenges with it. But, you know, Rishi and Jeremy are grown-ups in the room. They've stabilised the economy. Inflation is coming down, and I suspect we'll be at target by the time of the election. And I understand that when the Monetary Policy Committee at the start of February made their decision, uh, one at least voted for a cut in rates. And I think you'll see that happen across the pond with the Fed, and I think you'll see that happen here before, before I suppose too the, long. The yeah. thing is, though, that Rishi Sunak said during that Tory leadership contest in 2022, if you do this to Liz Truss, you will crash the economy, mortgages will go up, you'll lose control of inflation, you'll lose control of the nation's finances, unfunded tax cuts will not work. And that's exactly what happened. He was proved right. But that's now the legacy the Tory party that chose her has got to live with. Well, the membership chose her. Mm. The The MPs didn't. Mm. I mean, the MPs chose Rishi Sunak. So he was right, wasn't he? Mm. He was right about it. And, uh, and you know, at the end of the day, he's the one turning it around. Yeah. He's the one cleaning it up. So when right now you've got Liz just launching PopCon, her latest group of uh, popular conservatism, and, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and you've got Simon Clark plotting and, and whatever else. What do you say to, to Liz Truss now? Well, I, I do sometimes wonder if it was me and I'd been the shortest-lived British Prime Minister in history, I'd... Um, I'd struggle to get out in the morning, let alone be launching new political campaigns. You know, and I, I understand that she's one of those that's talking about the nanny state now with our smoking legislation. And I take the view that in a publicly funded health system, you have a right and indeed a responsibility to act on public health because it becomes the state's problem when people get sick. So, you know, to those that are out there with a view who are really just trying to define what they think will be the defeat so that they can pin it on Rishi and then move the party to where they want it to be on the right, unelectable place, FYI. Um, I would say, you know, take some time out and go somewhere else and let those of us that are actually with Project Rishi and those who are running the government right now do the job because Isaac Levito, who's the strategist, is dead right. Divided parties don't win elections and the public right now think we are divided. Actually, Simon Clark is just Simon Clark. I mean, there might be others that agree with him, but unless you come out and say it and stand up and be counted, then it's just Simon Clark, right? When we had the parliamentary party photo in the chamber recently, uh, it was the night that Simon Clark had said what he said about the Prime Minister and the family was closer than ever. It really brought the rest of us even closer together. Was he there? No. It brought the family closer together. Let's finish then with some uh, classic exit interview questions. Do you think we equipped you properly to handle your job? Do we set MPs up properly to do their jobs? Not in the slightest. You get. I got elected at 4am 
in the River Park Leisure Centre in Winchester on that Thursday in May 2010. I had my first bit of casework land in my email at about 4.35am. People who didn't get the answer they wanted from my predecessor, I'm sure. Uh, so no, and, you, and I was in there on Monday morning doing the job. Uh, there is no training whatsoever. You learn on the job. And I have a good relationship with my predecessor, who was a Liberal Democrat, Mark Oten. I have a good relationship with Mark and, uh, you know, he gave me some, some good advice, but there is no formal training. So what, what are the skills or qualifications that you want your successor, whoever that might be, to have? Well, I think ultimately, the thing that I've learned in life is that it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. And if ever that was true in, in any career, it's true in this one. You know, you are important as an MP and you have a privileged position and you have a platform and you get invited onto Times Radio and and that's great but that comes with a big responsibility so you know sometimes you've got to shut shut the ear shut the mouth and open the ears and listen and too many people don't do that so the skill is the skill is to listen and uh, make sure that you reflect what your constituents are saying which of course you can't literally you know we we don't live in a, in a we live in a representative democracy i'm not a delegate of winchester as churchill said there's no such thing as public opinion there's only published opinion but you know you've got to listen to what they're saying because you come unstuck very quickly if you don't what did you dislike most about the job being away from home hmm. ringing ringing the kids at bedtime uh, and just just catching a word with them and not not reading the book you know i disliked that and and, you know, and the abuse and the social media stuff, which is just plain nasty, actually, at times. That's just part of the job. I, I wouldn't say I dislike that, but, you know, I do I do sometimes... I was 50 last weekend, and I do sometimes look back on the <laughs> on the early years with the kids that I've missed, and, uh, yeah, I, I regret that a bit. But, that's hey, many, many of my constituents have that life where they leave before the family are awake and they get home after the kids have gone to bed. I'm no different. Yeah. Um... I mean, to, to be an MP for, what was it, 14-odd years now, there'll be highs and lows and all of that, and sometimes you find yourself in the headlines for the wrong reasons. You were, at one point, told off, essentially, by the Standards Commissioner because you'd, it should have been clear that you had a second job for a health recruitment firm and lobbying Matt Hancock and Michael Gove during the pandemic. Do you regret that? I mean, I suppose there was a lot going on during that during that period. Yeah, it was kind of like a national emergency, right? Um, and you can't be in public life and at the high profile of it for as long as I am without making enemies and people who want to cause trouble for you. And um, yeah, you know, look, we were in a national pandemic and uh, we were all trying to help. And uh, I, I said at the time, you know, fully accept uh, their, their criticisms and their, their rulings and that's their job. And when you see people, whether it's watching Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry or even Nicola Sturgeon uh, more recently... Do we just need to cut everyone involved some slack because it was an unprecedented thing? 100% we do. I feel I felt a lot of compassion for Nicola Sturgeon when I saw her at the, the COVID inquiry in Scotland. I mean, I have my, my issues with the COVID inquiry, which I think, you know, I've said this publicly, I think is becoming a circus. And when you talk to people about the COVID inquiry, they roll their eyes and go, oh, goodness. And it's going to go on for another two years yet. So, you know, I want to get to the nub of it. Like, you know, why did we spend so much time wiping rails on the underground when it was a respiratory illness that was passed through respiratory contact? Um, so, and I don't think it is getting to the nub of those things. But, you know, Boris... I think, as I say, it was unsuitable in many ways to, to, to governing a modern democracy. But he was also bold a really difficult one with a first pandemic in a century with an unknown 
coronavirus. And actually, all those people who are wise after the event, um, I wonder how much they would have done any better. And of course, he made mistakes. But you know what? Didn't we all? Um, and the, the trick is to make sure that we're in a better place for, for if it comes around next time. But yeah, we should cut politicians a lot more slack because guess what we're human too and we make mistakes and sometimes you know we don't word the email exactly as we should have um and sometimes that gets you in trouble but that's just life i'm sure you've made mistakes on emails in the past the whole point of this this series actually has been to show that you know that less of the sort of the day-to-day stuff but the, the human side of, of politicians last couple of questions then would you recommend the job to to your kids, I mean, they're a bit young at the moment. Would you, someone you cared about, would you encourage them into politics? Yes, but I would make sure that they went into it with their eyes wide open, as I did, because I'd worked at mm. the central office, and I, so I knew what I knew what it was like from talking to MPs. You don't know what it's like until you really, really do it. But what I always say to school kids, which is going into schools, is the best bit of this job. Um, and the best question I've ever been asked is, are your suits itchy by a young man who's seven <laughs> years old? I still, I'd still, i love to know what he meant by that. Anyway, um, what, what I di- what's the answer? I, I, no, uh, <laughs> I, I digress. Um, but, you know, I, w- I always ask for a show of hands in secondary schools, particularly in, in college and Peter Simmons in Winchester as to who wants to go into politics. And anybody who does, the advice I always give them is, you know, first things first, go and get a career because this job is not for life. You know, there are some people who have incredibly safe seats who stay in it for as long as they want to or until they die. Um, that isn't the case for most MPs. So get a career, have something else, because you never know when it's going to end or when you choose it to end, in, in my case. Uh, so do that, you know, m- make some money, have your family. A, a parliamentary candidate said to me the other day, you know, that they, we were going we're to wait until after the election to decide whether we start a family. And I said, don't do that. No. Don't do that. You know, Susie was pregnant throughout the 2010 election. We did what was right for our family. And, uh, you know, just, just go into it with your eyes wide open. But you know, don't, put, you know, don't put your life on hold for politics. Which brings us to the final question then. What will you do next? All will be revealed. At the moment, I'm mega busy. I'm chairing a select committee. And uh, rightly, I don't do anything outside of Parliament because I'm full on with that. And I will carry on doing it until the day of dissolution because that's what I think I said at the very start, right? That was the undertaking I made when I got re-elected in 2019. I'd serve the length of the Parliament, however long that would be. Um, But my passions, instead of saying what I will do, I'll tell you that it will follow my passions, which will be around cancer. It will be around prevention. Um, I'm still still very involved in music industry and culture, media and sport because I still sit on that select committee. So it'll be something in those worlds. And who knows, I may even get to play golf again. Well, I was going to ask you about that. In 2018, you were Parliamentary Golfer of the Year. <laughs> yes, well, I used to work in the golf industry before uh, I was in Parliament. Uh, I used to run a business called the Azalea Group. It's named after the 13th of Augusta and uh, I love playing golf, play off 16, which is not too shabby. I just don't get to play very often these days. But I do play in the parliamentary golf team, as you rightly say, and I'm hoping to do a little bit more of that uh, with my son, who's just taken it up when I leave. Can I just finally, Steve, congratulate you on the single best thing you did, which was getting Elton John to come to Parliament. <laughs> well, that was an incredible evening. Uh, I've never seen anything like the hangers-on, who suddenly <laughs> were the greatest Elton John fans in the world. But I do, one of, the, one of my great 
pleasures was was understanding the HIV and AIDS brief when I was a health minister. I knew nothing about it other than the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign when I was at secondary school. And I got to learn about what stigma really means mm. and uh, to, to, to now lead the group on HIV and AIDS, which I do with a, another Tory MP and a Labour MP. The three of us run it together. And uh, we invited Elton and he said, yes, I'll come. And to meet him and David Furnish was absolutely incredible because I'd seen him at Glastonbury a few months before and it was it was a great night. Uh, well, Steve, we'll, we'll leave it there. You're still standing or something. There's definitely a pun there. Steve Vine, <laughs> thanks very much for joining us for your exit interview. Thank you. I don't want to see you go, but darling, you better go now. Many thanks to Steve Bine for his exit interview. If you want to listen back to, I think we've done more than 10 now. We've got loads of them. Just search for the exit interviews wherever you're listening to this and we'll return to those in the coming weeks. I'm sure I'm not here next week. Patrick McGuire will be looking after you, but I will be back with some more exit interviews very soon. Don't forget, you can get in touch. Just email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.